When I was young, I traveled around the small towns of New England giving imitations of actors and celebrated people, and among them was an imitation of Mark Twain. I lived next to him all my early life. I can understand perfectly how the report of my illness came about. I can understand perfectly how the report of my illness came about. I can understand perfectly how the My name is Edward Champion, and this is a special edition of the Bat Segundo Show. A few days before the year's first snowfall got a late great start here in New York City, 
I asked 40 random people, construction workers, cops, falafel vendors, lovers on the run to a hotel room, just what Mark Twain meant to them. All but four recognized his name. They didn't always identify it with the author we all know and love today, but think about that. A writer who has been dead for more than a century still gets this astonishing name recognition. So I called Benjamin Griffin of the Mark Twain Project. Ben was also one of the editors on UC Press's three-volume autobiography of Mark Twain. Now, the first volume was published in 2010, under Twain's specific instructions not to publish the books until 100 years after his death, and the third volume came out last October. I hope to get some answers from Ben about just why the reports of Twain's death continue to be an exaggeration. The sprawling nature of Mark Twain's autobiography, I couldn't help notice, was published roughly around the same time as Carl Ove Kanaskar's equally sprawling six-volume My Struggle, as well as Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. I'm wondering why you think there's such a call for massive introspection in our age of 140-character tweets and seemingly short attention spans. Does it come down to an author's singular voice or some burning, enduring need to tap into... I don't know, an individual's expansive idea of the world around us. You know, I understand that they're going to increase the length of tweets, uh, which speaks to the same uh, impulse, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that even the very kinds of communication that are designed to be brief, we seem to want to expand them. The whole 19th century was about this. You know, it was an age of gigantism, uh, of, of creating a bigger and bigger book and a bigger and bigger opera, a longer and longer series of operas. I think Clemens knows all about that, although his work by nature tends to be rather short, though he likes to bulk it out, uh, make a large book out of it by using, you know, careful typesetting and paper handling and things like that. But yeah, the autobiography sprawls. Um, it's not a book that he himself brought out, and, and we must always wonder what he would have done with this material had he had the final disposition of it. Uh -huh. But yeah, I can see that people uh, really respond, to get back to what you were saying, to the, the, the gigantism of it, uh, even if they often tell me sort of abashedly that they're only partway into it or partway into volume one. And I, you know, I always forgive that. The first volume of this sold somewhere in the area of half a million copies, proving that a new Mark Twain volume almost has the impact of a blockbuster in our age of Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, why do you think... Twain endures. Do you have any ideas? Or? Well, of course, I don't really know, or else I would be—I'd be out there doing it. I'd be—I'd be, I'd be, <laughs> be Mark Twain, I guess. Um, but it, it's clear that he—he he has a great hold on people's imaginations, uh, more as a figure himself, I guess, as a man himself, than as in terms of his uh, his fiction. Um, though the fiction is some of the fiction, of course, is very enduring, but. Yeah, maybe I've often thought that he's kind of a prosthetic personality that we can kind of strap on. The, I mean, if you were going to pick a 19th century American life to live, this would be an amazing one. And we have so much information on him. It's such an amazing life. So I think, I think people love to, to get into it and follow it out, all the travels and all the different uh, careers and endeavors and the great writing and the story of his wooing and his marriage and tragedy of his late life, and it's, it's, it's extremely engrossing. I'm still troubled by your imagery of Twain as a strap-on prosthetic, but uh, I guess yeah. we'll, we'll carry on here. You've spent uh, a number of years plowing through Twain's papers. You've said that much of what has surprised general readers in the autobiography 
is not much of a surprise to you, but this does lead me to ask, given that you've spent so much time with Twain, does he continue to surprise you in any way, even now? Or are you just like, ah, that's that's Sam, you know, he's going ahead and doing the thing he usually does. Well, you know, there's, I guess there's a certain amount of that, but not 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 very, not by comparison to the number of times that he just makes me laugh. I mean, it, it happens all the time. I'm sitting here in my office and I'm uh, I'm editing right now. I'm working on a volume of Clemens's early San Francisco journalism. Oh, really? And very frequently, you'll just hear me. You just hear a, a you know, you just hear me spewing laughter. <laughs> it's it's it, he he has a great it, it's great stuff, especially this early journalism. I just love it. Wow. When when is that coming out? How far are you into that? I can't say when it'll come out. Hopefully, within a year or two. Um, we're very far into it. The, the volume was prepared in the main by an, a, a former editor at the project named Richard Bucci, uh, who has been working on this for some years, and I am um, applying some last-minute copy editing. But I hope we'll have it out very soon. It spans it, it's journalism that he wrote in San Francisco yeah. for the news for a, for a, a Nevada newspaper yes. in 1865 and 66. Oh, I, I I know that stuff. I mean, I've seen it quoted. Is this going to be like a complete volume of his journalism? How complete is this going to be? It's going to be a, a huge contribution towards a complete edition of of the journalism. Got it. Got it. Well, I mean, going back to this issue of uh, of, of Twain and how he hypothetically surprises you. I mean, what was there any particular difficult Twain passage in the three volumes that you had to deal with? Anything that might have offended you in any way? Or I'm really interested in this word "offend," and and you know, it's 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 so individual. What you know, you can't ask somebody not to be offended. Uh, they they sort of say, "I'm offended," and that's kind of an absolute thing. Um, I, an no, I, mean, it, I really mean it. I mean, yeah. there's, there's not a lot of um, reasoning we can do about about this emotional state. So I'm capable of it. Sure. Um, sometimes it's shocking that he's, you know, that his attitudes aren't in line with with what we expect of of civilized people today. Um, he didn't. He didn't think that he's. There's a bit in the autobiography. Two things occur to me. There's a there's a bit in the autobiography where he uh, makes very clear his objection to the age of consent. He thinks there shouldn't be any age of consent for sexual activity for women. That is to say that they should never at any age be able to consent to extramarital sexual activity. Uh, that is, so it's kind of, it, it sounds kind of backwards at first when I say that he thought there should be no age of consent. That sounds like he thinks sexual activity should go all the way down to wherever, but actually it's the opposite. He thinks that, that, that men who seduce women should always be chargeable with rape. So that's, no matter whether the woman liked it or consented to it. It's, and that was an interesting glimpse of a 19th century mindset. Um, <laughs> to say the least, yeah. Another one that interested me was um, in, when he went to, there's a sort of shadowy incident where, which we illuminated as much as we could, where he went to Oxford in 1907 to receive an honorary degree. And while he was there, he was informed by the Society of Rhodes Scholars that they'd like him to speak and try to smooth over some trouble there. And the trouble was that a, the first ever black Rhodes scholar had been elected and he was being shunned by other uh, white um, Rhodes scholars and not invited to, to, their, to their luncheons and not treated as one of them. And Clemens was asked to smooth over this problem. And, and in the end, it seems that he kind of funked it. 
he didn't he 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 sort of in in the end he made his excuses and didn't and he tells you he tells you why but tantalizingly this is the biggest missing chunk in the autobiography there's there's a there's a missing dictation at this point really and, you uh, haven't we, been able we to don't find know this what, we really that this very rare occurrence in the autobiography and and we don't know what happened to it so really? what happened in this case is kind of weird I'm, what efforts have you made to try to track down this mysterious all person? efforts <laughs> all efforts were made to what happened it to it I couldn't tell you. Oh, wow. Did you come close to finding I, it? I couldn't tell you, but, but tra you know, travel, jet travel was, was employed to, to go to the <laughs> oh places that, where, this, where this might have been, and, uh, and it's not there. Wow. We didn't find it. Oh, my gosh. A summary of it exists. There's one really interesting section in Volume 3 where Twain attempts to delineate the difference between reciting an adapted passage from Roughing It and then reading it directly from the book, and he says that the difference is as elusive as an odor, pungent, pervasive, <laughs> but defying analysis. And he points to the pause as a valuable tool to captivate an audience. I just threw in a pause there just for the hell of it. That was uh, beautiful. Yeah. Um, Twain was clearly aware that he was dictating the autobiography, which he knew would be published, but he was also a bit of a technology geek. He installed the first telephone in his house. He hung around in Tesla's lab in 1894. And I'm wondering, are there any connections we can draw between Twain embracing technology and the manner in which he dictated his autobiography and which he knew full well that there was a distinct difference between the oral and written forms? He believed in the beginning that he was going to be able to use a phonograph, which was called a graphophone at that point. We hadn't got it quite worked out to to dictate, and he he hated. He turned out he turned out to really dislike the dictating to the machine, and that and that went by the boards. And so he dictates the autobiography to a, a human being. Yeah, but he was fascinated with technology. Um, sometimes this this gets a little exaggerated, and Clemens himself is ultimately to blame. Uh, for, I, I keep running into the factoid that he wrote Tom Sawyer or Huckleberry Finn on a typewriter, and that this was the first. In, well, he didn't. He didn't use the typewriter. It, the, the type typescripts were prepared of, of his books from Huckleberry Finn onward, but he did not. He was not the typewriting person. The Wapping Alice story was drafted as early as 1897, and that wasn't actually dictated. So he was kind of doing a mashup of sorts in the autobiography. There's a, a, a great variety of sources for the autobiography, and that's one of the things that makes it so interesting and so unique. It's kind of not exactly an autobiography. It's more like an omnium gatherum of bits and bobs that he thinks should go in. And of course, it's Clemens's very inclusive idea of an autobiography that makes that possible. He thinks that anything he throws in there inevitably shows the quality of his mind. And a person's mind, that's their real life, not the story of where they were born and where they went sequentially through the, through the world, but, but the story of, of what was in their head. Well, let's talk about how uh, Twain lobbed a number of pot shots at various people. He called Andrew Carnegie the human being unconcealed, whereby Carnegie was unsuccessful at uh, concealing what he was. And Twain goes on at great length about what a complacent and self-centered man Carnegie was. And I'm wondering, why did Twain have it in for Carnegie? I mean, is it possible that he saw the worst aspects of himself in Carnegie? Or Yeah. Yeah. I think you just nailed it. The... the, the when he goes on a tirade against somebody like that, 
and it is very noticeable in the Carnegie one. Uh, he's, he could easily be describing himself in all the, in all the, the horrifying details that he's parading in front of you. And, and I, the question is, to what degree was he aware that he was doing that? Yeah. He also does it with Roosevelt, who he just, mm-hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, whom he just, one way you could explain Mark Twain's loathing for Roosevelt and his obsession with him is that, is that Roosevelt was, his only, was Clemens' only rival as the world's most famous and most recognizable American. So it was fame that essentially caused these projections of his worst qualities onto his mortal enemies. Maybe it is, yeah. Huh. Uh, I wanted to get into the Ashcroft manuscript, which Twain saw as a weapon. Uh, Isabel Lyon, she is Twain's secretary. She helped him out on the autobiography. She married one of Twain's business associates, Ralph Ashcroft, and then Twain believes that Lyon was trying to bamboozle him out of his money. And then you have Twain's daughter, Clara, who fears that Lyon would expose her extramarital affair. So this was an altogether different weapon. I mean, one that Twain threatened to publish if Lyon went public with this sordid details about Clara. Uh, The manuscript was not part of the Mark Twain papers, and Twain scholars, as you point out, didn't get around to seeing this until 60 years after Twain's death. What do you think the Ashcroft Lyon manuscript, or even the two manuscripts you edited in the Family Sketch volume, what does this reveal about Twain that the autobiography doesn't? How do these many personal chronicles add to our understanding of Twain? A lot, but uh, one of them that seems really prominent to me is that although it's not exactly part of the autobiography, the Ashcroft Lyon manuscript makes, in one way, a really satisfying conclusion to it, because all through the autobiography, you're reading Twain's own carefully combed uh, memories and opinions. Um, he says that he's being really candid, but there's a lot he's not telling you about his life. He's, he's writing down what he thinks is, is suitable. Such as what? <laughs> Well, the whole the whole Gallimaufry that we were just yeah. I can't I can't bring it all in. I'm talking about the, all three volumes sure. of the complete autobiography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in the and and through it all, you see him going to all these parties and functions and meeting the ambassador of this and the story of the you know the Kaiser is going to be over here tomorrow and 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 you think what about his personal life and to what degree does he realize that he is flattered and coddled and that his and you know that, that this is the life of a of a wealthy a uh, very coddled celebrity and that people aren't really necessarily telling him the truth. And there could be, you know, maybe my, you know, your dramatic uh, uh, urges want you to re- want, uh, why won't you, why won't he reveal some of the worms that are eating away at this paradise? Of, you know? And then in the Ashcroft Lion manuscript, you get them, you get this private manuscript about uh, the skullduggery that was going on in his household and about his own discovery that he is being lied to and flattered and manipulated. And he compares himself to King Lear. And, you know, while that's a little much, Grandiose. He, 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 he is an old man. He's got these daughters. He's finding out at the end of life that not, not everything is, is as it was. And it's, it's yet another dramatic pose, but it, it's a very satisfying one, I think. Huh. So it seems to me, Ben, that you're suggesting that we almost need to go to his personal papers in order to, act, to actually triangulate the grandiose image that he painted of himself to get at some of the truth that was kind of lying underneath the surface, as it were. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, if, you, if we just take Mark Twain at face value and, and, and say, oh, he's so iconic, 
then we'll be making a big mistake. Uh, he, he's, he's complex and, and fascinating, and he's not the Cracker Barrel philosopher that a lot of people imagine uh, when they think about Mark Twain. Uh, we, everything we do at the papers is, is, is involved with um, using his private manuscript, the stuff that's here in the Bancroft Library, to illuminate his public utterances. In 2011, there were some editions of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer that were published replacing the racial epithets with Indian and slave, and it proved that Twain's work is still dangerous among the politically correct. And we've seen recent efforts whereby the World Fantasy Award stops issuing its H.P. Lovecraft statue because Lovecraft is a racist. We see mm. Princeton students who have demanded that Woodrow Wilson's name be removed from the campus buildings because of his racism. And uh, Mark Twain himself was not immune from racism. I mean, there, there's Austin, the infamous Twain adaptation of the Bret Hart story, The Heathen Chinese, which contains some really deplorable racism. So given recent developments, I have to ask, I mean, can Twain stand the test of time in our new age of offense? What can be said to counter the justifiable concerns of those who believe that Twain might be something of a hypocrite, given his language? I think Mark Twain is a great creative mind, and he, and, and he has so many qualities that inevitably he is something of a hypocrite. Uh, as you know, a really capacious human mind isn't going to be completely free of that quality. Um, he grows up in a specific place and time, and he bears the traces of that place and time. Uh, it's, I always think it's remarkable how much he transcends his place and time, but it's a matter of opinion. If people want to concentrate on the ways in which he doesn't, that's a perfectly valid area to be laboring in, I think. Um, I don't understand about publishing, uh, you know, the altered edition of Huckleberry Finn, things like that. We, you know, let, let's confront history as it appears to us. That's, that's the first thing. We have to have a straight historical record before we can even make our decisions about how we feel about it. So you're saying that a voice that stands the test of time, a capacious mind like Twain's, needs to be accepted to some degree on its own terms, even as we reconcile some of the hypocrisies and some of the uh, regrettable feelings of that time and the prejudices and all that, that, that really Mark Twain, uh, I guess, is, is, is fated to have a legacy uh, even though it's a problematic one. Well, I believe he certainly he has a legacy. I mean, nobody's legacy seems to be more enduring. Uh, but that's really for time to decide, and not and not us. Um, I think he was confident that a thousand years in the future, people would still be reading him. In most people, this would be lunacy. But in him, so far, he's right. Uh, as for as for looking back over the past, my personal feeling is that y you want to look at. You want to look at writers, be they Twain or H.P. Lovecraft, uh, as they are, and then decide what, what place you have for them in your life and in your culture. Um, but, you know, I'm involved with making the author's every word available. That's, that's you know, that's our focus. Well, you've been doing great work on this, and I have uh, very uh, much enjoyed the autobiography, and it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Ben, thank you very much. Well, thank you. In the opening moments of this show, we heard from a gentleman who felt considerable relief knowing that Mark Twain was a terrible businessman. And while Twain did blow his money like a drunken sailor with shallow pockets near the end of his days, what you may not know is that in his early years, he was actually quite a savvy entrepreneur. 
In 2014, I talked with historian Ben Tarnoff, author of The Bohemians, about Twain's revolutionary approach to publishing and the way in which San Francisco's environment during the 1860s helped mold one of America's most original writers. One of the interesting qualities of Mark Twain's success uh, with The Innocents Abroad involves this interesting subscription model where you have door-to-door salesmen actually selling The Innocents Abroad like encyclopedias would in the next century. And it's fascinating because you have the wonderful transcontinental railroad that has been built. You have all these people in various hubs. They need reading material. And this is how Twain makes his name. Um, But because of this particular literary approach, Twain does not get the respect that he clearly deserves by the snobby Eastern critics. And yet when he goes to England later, he's received by everybody. Uh, why do you think the, uh, there was a certain kind of diffidence to Twain at the time? Uh, I, I don't think it was necessarily just that uh, subscription model, or, or could that be enough to stigmatize you, even the fact that you actually got through to people? I think there's a lot of things stigmatizing Mark Twain in this period. Yeah. I mean, just his appearance alone I think is is stigmatizing enough. He looks very disreputable. He speaks in this very peculiar drawl that makes a lot of people think that he's drunk all the time. So just him showing up, you know, the offices of the Atlantic Monthly, which he does in 1869 to thank a young editor named William Dean Howells for a favorable review, he is always comment, people are always commenting on his appearance. So that's a major factor. His style is also crude by the standards of the Eastern literary establishment. I mean, when you read Longfellow, for instance, the styles are very different in terms of just their prose. And certainly how his material is being marketed is a major factor. You mentioned subscription publishing. I think of the analogy today as, you know, digital publishing or eBooks, or maybe that's not an ideal analogy, but he is basically going directly to his audience. He's bypassing booksellers and is using these agents who peddle his book door to door, which horrifies the New England literary establishment. I mean, that is not what you're supposed to do to sell a respectable book. And he's a lecture personality. You know, he's essentially a stand-up comic, and he relies on that a lot, both to make money for himself and also to promote his material. So I think all of these factors make it hard for Twain to climb the ladder of Eastern literary respectability, and it takes him decades. Would you say, and I'd like to get into the lecture tour as well, the many lecture tours he made, and also uh, this figure, uh, Artemis Ward, who is America's first stand-up comic. That's right. Uh, is essentially the Spalding Gray a century before his time. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, do you think that the stand-up comedy lecture touring actually stigmatized Twain more than any of the subscription models did. Is that safe to say? I think it's, it, I would say both contributed in, in ways because he's, he's presenting himself as a public persona and he is directly appealing to this rising middle class of the post-Civil War period where there's this incredible hunger for new print products. There's an explosion in publishing. These illustrated weeklies like Harper's and Scribner's appear which are major competitors to the Atlantic Monthly, by the way. So New York is emerging as a media capital to, to compete with an older Boston literary world. And Twain very much belongs to that cultural shift. Yeah. Um, so he's basically doing anything he can to direct connectly with that audience. 
uh, and that happens with subscription publishing. That happens that happens uh, on the lecture circuit, in his extensive PR campaigns for his books, where he writes to everybody he knows to make sure that they'll all write positive reviews and sends out hundreds of review copies. I mean, he is a PR maven. Yeah. And, Not a good uh, businessman, but very good at negotiation and very good at public relations. Yeah. Well, that's what's funny is that we think of him as a terrible businessman because later in life he bankrupts himself, yeah. mostly by investing in the stupid yeah. typesetting machine. But when it comes to marketing his own books, he's pretty sophisticated entrepreneurially. Of course, he um, he's not so good at spending money once he has it. Yes. But in this period, I think he does a pretty good job of, of marketing his books. What of the iconoclastic nature of Twain in the San Francisco days? I want to talk about that because there is this misconception here from 2014, even with the the slow release of the three-volume autobiography, right. uh, that Twain is this kind of avuncular figure who always has a cigar in his mouth and has a wonderful jumping frog story to tell everyone, uh, and is and is just a kind of ador- an adorable kind of guy. But he was extraordinarily vicious, iconoclastic, fearless in in taking out targets, willing to go ahead and spread lies and get them published in high places, willing to go ahead and pit people against each other, and absolutely intransigent when it came to maintaining a feud. Um, you know, how much of, of this was encouraged by Twain's temperament and how much of this was encouraged by the general hustle and bustle nature of San Francisco in the 1860s? Well, I'd say it's a perfect storm. I mean, yeah. Twain's temperament is explosive, as you know, and this is before he conceals it under this avuncular kind of man-in-the-white-suit facade, yeah. which is really how we imagine him now. But that's really the Twain of his last decade or so, you know, and this is the Twain in my book of his 20s and 30s when he's still emerging. He's almost constantly broke. He's viciously competitive with his peers in the West. He's very ambitious and he's terribly anxious and racked with fears of the future. He's convinced that he's going to end up in the poorhouse. And this is, is very motivating, but occasionally overwhelms him. He even attempts suicide at one yeah. point in, in San Francisco or you know, decides not to at the last minute. Yeah. Or he doesn't have the guts to go through with it as he says. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But, you know, as you say, the Western literary scene is a perfect place to kind of make his personality even more extreme, particularly in Virginia City, where he gets his start as a Western writer. Yeah. And Virginia City is a wild boom town. It's a bit like how I imagine the boom towns now in North Dakota with the fracking. I mean, it's it was this incredible community in uh, in Western Nevada on Mount Davidson, which was the epicenter of the Comstock, Comstock load. And Twain is surrounded by violent, hard-drinking men, really almost all of them are men, who shoot each other in the streets and provoke duels with one another on the slightest pretext. So it's definitely a place for Twain's extreme, explosive personality to become even more so. Or to be fit right in with the character of Virginia City and the character of San Francisco. Uh, I mean, this is this is really has been kind of causing my head to spin in the last uh, uh, couple of weeks since I read your book. I've been I've been thinking very much about how literary movements come about because of a particular originality or freedom associated with a place. And and in the case of of what you set up in this book, I mean, I I look to some of the kind of uh, more passive. 
approach that we see in Brooklyn. And I say, well, how can we generate, how can we be expected to generate uh, a new literary movement when everybody is playing it safe and they're pulling their punches? But Twain is somehow capable of both enlarging his explosiveness and also using using this to sort of make money. Or I, I, that's, these two things seem totally uh, diametrically opposed at the same, or, or really was it this, the lecturer racket that allowed him to essentially maintain his own voice. That was really the way for him to be himself. I mean, if he didn't have that, maybe he might have become any old newspaper hack during the time. Is that safe to say? Well, I think without his lecture persona, he would probably not achieve the same level of fame because that was so key to how he popularized himself and also key to how people perceived him. I mean, I think he's, you know, the thing we have to remember about Twain is that he's emerging in the first age of mass media in America, where you have this huge proliferation of newspapers, you have telegraph and railroad networks, and Twain is recognized. You know, he's photographed endlessly. He's, uh, people can recognize him in the street. So he really is a celebrity in the modern sense of the term. And his onstage performances are inseparable from that. Well, the question is, is, I mean, he rarely, when he was in San Francisco, he rarely came home before midnight. So really, was it just a matter of uh, a, a kind of honing his marketing, I suppose, by going out into the streets of San Francisco and essentially knowing everybody in, in, much in the same way that we associate with Ed Koch, <laughs> that that was kind of his sort of strategy, really, before he knew that he could make some money on the, on the lecture tour? I mean, I'm just curious. Well, he's think? also, you know, I, I think there are certainly nights he's staying out until after midnight. He writes this letter to his mother, yes. I think it's his first visit to San Francisco, where he says, Mom, I'm staying up all night, which I think is partly, you know, he's also kind of messing with her. I mean, he definitely loves to mess with his mother, as, as many sons do. Yeah. But he's, in that period, you know, he conceals also how hard he's working on his craft, because we think of Twain as this fun-loving character, but he's also a very serious writer, and he spends a lot of time alone in a room writing, uh, as any writer does. And this San Francisco period, the reason it's so important, I think, is not just because of the emergence of the lecture persona, but also because this, these are the years where he's taking a deeper investment in literary craft and really opening up the resources that will allow him to become such a transformative figure in American literature. Mm-hmm. To listen to the full one-hour conversation with Ben Tarnoff, go to batsegundo.com. B-A-T-S-E-G-U-N-D-O and listen to show number 541. There are more than 550 other conversations all available for free with writers, filmmakers, musicians and some of the most original minds gallivanting around our mortal coin. Mark Twain's legacy has also resulted in a recent film called Band of Robbers that just became available as video on demand. It's about the loosest adaptation of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer that you're likely to see. There's a pawn shop robbery, it's set in the modern day, and filmmaker Adam Nee insists that it's absolutely faithful to Twain's vision. Now, Nee co-wrote and co-directed the film with his brother, Aaron Nee. You may know the Nee brothers from a previous film they did called The Last Romantic. But Nee also plays Tom Sawyer. Kyle Gallner plays a strapping Huck Finn with a denim jacket and a cool goatee. And I talked with Adam Nee and Kyle Gallner during a recent visit they made to New York City.
you know, I wanted to go ahead and start off with the question of adaptation. Yeah. Um, I mean, some reviewers have compared this to Wesley Anderson's Bottle Rocket, but to my mind, it recalled Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye, where, of course... Oh, I love that. Yeah, the first ten minutes is Elliot Gould getting cat food for his uh, cat, who's very finicky, and it's it's about as far away from Chandler as you can actually, you can actually go. And there was also this recent dust-up in uh, the UK over a BBC adaptation of War and Peace, where the writer Andrew Davies decided to include incest scenes and sex scenes. And, oh, uh, interesting. And he, wrote, he said this, I haven't felt the need to change War and Peace. Occasionally I have written one or two things that Tolstoy forgot to write. Oh <laughs> Which my is, gosh, yeah, that's yeah, a good really quote. wonderfully iconoclastic. Go out bold. I mean, that's yeah. nice. I like that confidence. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, Adam, given this very loose adaptation of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, I mean, did this represent in some sense a way of writing about scenes that Twain forgot? Uh, do filmmakers owe anything to preserving a legacy? Do actors owe anything to preserving a legacy? I am going to stop you right there and tell you that I do not believe that this is a very loose adaptation of Twain. Ah. I This this movie has at least 25 to 30% of it is verbatim dialogue pulled from those books. I have noticed that. As well as the movie is the setup of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn that goes into the man cave sequence and all yes. that stuff. And then when they go off and they do this pawn shop robbery, we're pulling from this is a very loose adaptation of the failures yes. of the band of robbers. And then from that point, what we start to do is we transition into the Adventures of Tom Tom Sawyer with the Injun Joe treasure story and Tom and Huck's going for that. We have the cemetery sequence. We have Doc Robinson. We have all of that stuff. And in the Becky Thatcher storyline. And what we did that one of the things I'm most proud of is in the adventures of Tom Sawyer, you have this world of Tom and Polly and Sid representing the civilized world. And so we took that and transposed it into a police station. And Becky Thatcher is a part of that world as well. And so we took that home, that Tom Sawyer home life and put it in the police station and then let that rapscallion nature of Tom that, that we see in the books be his sort of bucking against uh, the, his, you know, his sort of uniform position. But I do feel like there, pretty much every single scene in the movie is actually pulled from the books. Including the welcome back party and including the My Other Car is Jesus. <laughs> oh, sure, sure, sure. There are definitely, it's not a verbatim in that like every yeah. line. We are definitely bringing in uh, modern touches or like strange <clears throat> things that I feel like are operating in the same world if you put these people in, in the bodies of 30-year-old men um, in, in modern times. But yeah, there are definitely... There are definitely um, new lines, for sure. Absolutely. But I feel like it is all sort of loyal to the storylines of the originals. What about the look of Tom and Huck? I mean, Kyle, you are basically sporting the whole goatee and denim jacket thing, which I don't recall uh, Huck looking like that. (laughs) Uh, Not not any of the illustrations or even in any of Twain's evocative prose. (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, uh, You know, we worked worked on the look. We kind of just... Try to take what we thought these guys would, you know, would look like now, grown up, and in, in, in sort of a modern take on it. But yet, some of the, you know, a lot of the um, wardrobe is not necessarily timeless, but it, you know, it doesn't necessarily look like it's like, oh, this is clearly 2015. I mean, it could be like the 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. There's 70s, room for hoodies 60s. in the Twain universe, right? I mean, you know, it's it's a different story. Yeah, know, something a, that we wanted to do was. We wanted people to look, it was sort of like the way that people kind of dressed when they were children, when we were children, yeah. uh, which would be like the late 80s, because it's we... like your mom dressed you. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because we wanted to connect to that nostalgia that we felt for the Twain stuff, and it, we, you know, because it came into our lives when we were children. And we also we wanted the wardrobe and the settings, the locations, all to feel like it's in a state of arrested development, just like our protagonist. Uh -huh. And so even the wardrobe looks like they're wearing what they would wear when they were 10, year old, 10 years old, like Goobler's outfit with the short shorts yeah. and headband. He looks like a 10 year old yeah. at, at, at like T-ball. Yes, yes, yeah. the American uh, boxers yeah, thing and all that. Uh, I mean, well, so Kyle, what, did you, did, what research did you do in terms of Twain? I mean, you know, at what point do you depart from the legacy and at what point you say, ah, you know, Fuck it, it's uh, it's a new adaptation. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. yeah um, well, I had you know I I'd watched the movies when I was when I was m much younger and and you know I'd I'd seen all I'd seen stuff when I was younger and, and read a little bit when I was younger, but it's been such a long time. Um, so I pretty much used I pretty much just used Adam and Aaron and the script as 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 kind of the Bible for this thing, just because you, you know you, you sort of don't want it to turn into like an impression of what you think this guy should be based on the source material because this is a different time and it is a story that these guys are telling and and there are there are some differences so you know if I had questions or if there was anything we need we needed to go over I would go to Adam and Aaron and they would they would really cover things and you know. The film has such a unique tone that they were able to, you know, help guide me in that as well. And I guess I'm keen to um, know how you sort of cultivated the backstory for Huck. Forget the text. I'm concentrating on the performance. I'm concentrating on creating a vivid character. I'm concentrating on creating something completely distinct, yet also at the same time respectful to Troyan in some sense as well. Um, in terms of backstory, I mean, you 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 know, you go over time. Huck's getting out of prison. You got to assume that he's. Him and Tom have stayed friends, you know, their their whole lives, and 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 they've they've gotten in trouble together their whole lives. Like, you know, things probably weren't terribly different growing up. Where you know, Huck, you know, he's taken the rap for Tom a couple times, and it's gotten him in trouble. And as you get older, things get a little more serious, and you know, you start doing jail time. And yeah, yeah. So you just kind of think about where he came from. You know, he came from a rough upbringing. He came, and he's coming from a place now where he's probably a little bit more of a reformed criminal where it's he, he wants a life he wants a family he wants you know he doesn't want to he doesn't want to live the way he the way things were when he was you know hanging out getting in trouble with Tom he doesn't want that anymore so you kind of just have to take it from that point of view if it's like this is almost a fresh start for him this is a clean slate so you just it, it's it's almost like the beginning of a new story so you you know you think about his backstory and where it's coming where where he came from but you're also thinking about a fresh start so there was there was a lot to there was a lot to draw from and a lot to play with and um, these guys were really good with you know making sure things were kept on track or having discussions about about Huck and you know they would they would they would talk to me about where these ideas came from in the script and how you know the script fit in with the book and they just they just painted a really nice clear picture for me. Well, my understanding, Adam, is that actually you cast yourself as Tom Sawyer. That's right. Because there were no acceptable Tom Sawyers. And I'm really curious about that. Right. Was this a matter of uh, of just no one could actually have the chemistry right. with Kyle? Or, or No, I'm <laughs> sure that I'm sure that uh, there are a lot of I'm very guys. hard to get along with. I, 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 you, you, uh, you, you've, you've bit me twice during the course of the last exactly. ten minutes. Yeah, he keeps sneaking yeah. over and biting you. You know, there are a lot of guys who could probably play this part great, but they didn't want to do the movie. Um, um, so we uh, we made all of really why well you know I think because it's hard it's, to get funded without an actor yeah, and it's hard to get an actor without funding oh, I see, <laughs> so I we see. had no financing when we were trying to cast it to start 
and we offered it to probably a dozen guys who who you would recognize. And they all said, "Pay me, bitch." Well, they all, though, their agents said, <laughs> oh, "We're not going to be interested." Okay, let's let's yeah. let's get the the yeah. the area the proper the uh, proper, infl- blame. proper responsibility. Yes, yes. If you have to blame anyone. Yes, well, that's interesting. Okay. And so when we did get financing, we had already been turned down by a lot of guys. We started having auditions, and in the audition process. It was a lot of people who were really talented and actors that we liked, but it wasn't quite feeling like it was hitting the tone. Um, I think some. I think with some people, um, I think it's difficult to know you're going into a Tom and Huck adaptation and not bringing a lot of baggage with that or trying to over figure it out. And so it was just a voice that I lived with for so long because of writing it that Aaron, my brother and, and co-director, started to kind of push a little bit and say, hey, you know, this might not be a bad idea for you to do this. And then Matthew Gray Goobler, who's in it and a producer, was calling me every day because I was sending him the audition tapes too because he was a producer. And he was just like, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. And then Kyle Gallner auditioned for the movie. And he was friends with Goobler, and he called up Goobler and said, hey, why isn't that guy Adam playing Tom? And when, uh-huh. I, and when we realized that we could cast Kyle and he wouldn't quit the movie if I did it, it started to become a real conversation. And that's when we went to the producers. Aaron went sort of like hat in hand, partially because we knew that we hadn't found our lead, and so the movie's going to get pushed either because of that or because we go and say, what if one of the directors does it? So we figured we might as well go out with a bang. And Aaron went to them and said, hey, what if Adam does it? And we were lucky to have the most trusting producers ever. And I put myself on tape for it yeah. and sent them an audition. And they were like, yeah, all right. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was the best thing that could happen. I mean, it was, you know, like I've, we've, we've talked about it before, but you know, I'm not here. It was, uh, <laughs> well, now it's a new place. Yeah, you say whatever the hell you want. <laughs> but no, I had read the script and, you know, the script is an interesting script, and, you know, you read something, and it's like, this is based off of Tom Sawyer, and Hook, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, and you, you just read it, and you're like, well, I hope this is good. And I read it, and I was like, wow, I really I really like this, but I'm not sure if I understand what this is going to be. Um, and I didn't understand what it was going to be until I got into the audition room and read with Adam, because Adam read with all the actors. And suddenly, those words on that page coming out of his mouth, because looking at the page, I was like, how would anybody do this? That, like, machine-gunning, like, crazy dialogue. And I was like, this just seems like a fucking mess. A little bit. (laughs) But I really like Huck, and there's so many great things about it. And then hearing that come out of his mouth, I was like, this is the movie. This is the relationship. This is what this film is supposed to be, and the tone of this movie. And it, like, suddenly all came together that it was, in, in my mind, when... You know, I was still waiting to hear if I was even going to get the job, but I was harassed, as Goob's harassing him, I'm harassing, you know, Matt. And it was just this undeniable thing that I was like, good, bad, or ugly, that dude needs to play Tom, whether I'm in it or not. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't know who else would do it. Well, I mean, was this uh, an appeal to you? Because, I mean, you seem to flip back and forth between commercial and independent projects, Kyle, and why this one in particular seemed to be like, oh, I mean, not just the Twain imprimatur, but also probably other things like such as the tone or, or what? A lot of things I do are pretty heavy. <laughs> oh, I see. Sometimes, and... and I read this one and was like, man, this is just a lot of fun. It's a whole lot of fun, and it would be like playing cops and robbers, and and just it would. I feel like it would just be a really good time. And then I went in and read, and I had this instant draw to Adam and his brother. There was I don't know what it was. There was just this thing. I, I read with Adam and was like, man, that guy's good. And then you know the two of them were giving me notes, and it it just all made sense. And I was like, wow, these guys are really good. And I really like them. 
and I want to be friends with them, and I want to like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I want to like work with them, and, and so there was just there was just this instant appeal that I, I walked out of there. It wasn't even just because of the script. I was like, man, I really hope I get to work with with these guys. For Twain geeks such as myself, yes, uh, there are many callbacks, Adam, to the Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Yes. The early scene where Tom and Huck meow at each other yes. is a literal version of the moment. And will you meow? Yes, and you meow back if you get a chance. Yeah. Uh, the reference to Robin Hood during the initiation ceremony. Dead men tell no tales. A callback to the rap trip, the Huck Finn reference to Special Agent George Jackson, the Hannibal Hotel, named after Twain's boyhood home in Missouri. I don't even know if that was actually real or not. And then, of course, there's even a balloon in the hotel room that references Tom Sawyer abroad, which I thought that was, I'm not sure if that was deliberate on your part or not. But The, the, um, the hot air balloon? Yes. Good, that's yeah, great. Yeah, so I mean, I'm wondering, you know, if the idea here was, if you are making a film in Mark Twain's shadow, that if you litter the film with all sorts of references, you're in like Flynn with the Twain scholars or the Twain crowd saying, look, look, see, 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 we got the, we got the balloon, we got the Hotel Hannibal, <laughs> we're actually going to be okay here. You know, I mean, what was, I mean, I'm wondering what the motivation of this was in terms of, or was this just a way of honoring Twain in a way so that you could actually be free to digress from Twain? You know, I think that the, I, I honestly feel like all those little Easter eggs are, are secondary to me the the bigger stuff the bigger adaptation things that that I feel like we did or would be things like you know the Hannibal Hotel is called was used to be called the cavern and it, it represents the cave sequence with Becky and Injun Joe like those types of like the bigger story point um, adaptation things I feel like are the things that I'm hoping are more for the Twain fans. The East, the Easter eggs are, are definitely, you know, for the hardcore people yeah. uh, like yourself, which I love. It's it's great. I'm glad that you're seeing all that stuff. Um, but I mean, I, you know, it was Aaron and I uh, took it very seriously that we honored Twain and that we were faithful to his stories and to the tone. But it was also very important that the movie stood on its own as just like a movie because. The sad truth is, I mean, honestly, most people aren't super familiar with Twain the same way that you and I are. And I hope that this movie brings them back to those books. I hope that people will reread the books because obviously what you can do in 95 minutes is not the same as two beautiful, sprawling books that have so much humor and so much substance. Um, But, you know, yeah, we were trying very hard to be faithful, honor the source material, be true to the source material, but also make a movie that stands alone as a, a you know, a, an action comedy drama. The four Tom Sawyer novels, they are all driven by a particular speech vernacular, uh, laden with misspellings, laden with a particular Missouri pronunciation. And I'm wondering why you opted for the more casual speaking style for this film, and whether there was any discussion between perhaps you and Kyle over trying to get something close to that vernacular. It doesn't seem to be in the film, but I, I, I was, I was, that was the one thing I was saying, well, you know, I wonder if it could have actually played that way too. It could have, absolutely. And that was a discussion that Aaron and I had for a long time while writing it was, do we push it? Do we make this like this Missouri story or do we let it be anywhere America? And, and, and we just felt like as far as accessibility, it was a smarter move to let it feel more like general outskirts of anywhere America. And that's why we made that decision to sort of depart from that because that's also such a time uh, thing as far as like where we are in the timeline of humanity. I feel like um, that group of people who talks like that is much fewer and far between now. And there's more of a 
just general American accent assimilation that has happened, and we just felt like... Oh, I don't know, Adam. I recently went on a road trip, and I went not even that far into Pennsylvania, and already the vernacular had completely changed. It's true. I, I think we, we sometimes, you know... Maybe we're coastal. Yeah, yeah. no, this whole, this whole flyover state thing, a term I despise. I do, just, too. It's really... I mean, there are all sorts of vernaculars, so why not, you know, yeah, included yeah. in this? Absolutely. I mean, I, I realize you're making a film. I realize you have to actually get to, out to an audience, but certainly, you know... We, you know, we grew up in the South. South, Aaron and I, and uh, and so we were obviously around, you know, very, you know, various accents, and and uh, we just, for us, it just felt like the this movie called for a more general anywhere America type of a feel for us to modernize it in the way that we wanted to, and also for us to include some of the stories that were important to us, like turning the Jim character into the illegal immigrant Jorge, yes. um, and that's the type of thing where that was an experience that we really had had in California, living in California, where you see that, you see this sort of second class citizen thing happening, and so having things like that um, kind of made it become more of that western sort of thing to, to make that possible. And I was keen to talk to you about Jim's transformation into Jorge, which I found quite interesting. Now, the implication is is that being an illegal illegal immigrant is, in some sense, the 21st century idea to slavery. But simultaneously, I, I mean, I was wondering if you actually did try to have a Jim-like figure, more like Twain's, and complete even with racial epithets and all that, and why you refrained from that. I mean, it was that was probably the something we spent the most time sort of just discussing before even you know putting pen to paper. There was a version of this where um, an early version where Jim was an ex-con who had spent a lot of time in prison for a crime that he didn't commit. Um, there were a lot of incarnations and a lot of different thoughts, but for us, it just felt like there is truly no version of modern day slavery that isn't offensive to real slavery because I just feel like there it's just such a blackness on our history um, such a dark spot that it's just be careful with the modifiers <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah let me rephrase uh, yeah, that yeah. it's just such a it's such a sad part of American history that it's so embarrassing I don't feel like there is something right now that you could say is um, on the same level as far as uh, how appalling that is so what we focused on was who are marginalized people now that feel like they are treated as second-class citizens by society, by culturally, in a way that's like people are fine with it. Yeah. I, the way that immigrants are treated, for the most part, is like it's it's like casual racism. It's fine. People are very casual about the way that they treat illegals. And, uh, the in Dream Act and things like that, where you are essentially, uh, I, I have a friend who was born in Mexico and has been here and uh, has been here for many decades, and she can't actually get citizenship, yet she pays her taxes and she's under constant scrutiny when she goes to the airport. She's yeah. terrified of going to specific airports because she and she will drive like 100 miles out of her way in order to avoid possibly getting tagged. And it's one of the most disgraceful poxes upon the American climb that, uh, that we just don't talk about. I think we will look back on it with such embarrassment in a similar way that we do on slavery it's yeah. just it's it's truly like a cultural embarrassment and even having people like Donald Trump run it that the fact that he can run for president and talk about the wall he's gonna build and stuff is just such a, a it's such a strange time in our history and use children for these videos <laughs> yeah oh exactly god. oh my god the video <laughs> that thing horrified me man oh, you know it was great I, yeah, I had a friend this morning I'm like my jaw was on the floor like getting into the air that like, is gonna oh. be a great 
T- hashtag TBT for those poor girls when they get out of the uh, prison homes that they live in. Can, can we can we three just dress up in American flags and just <laughs> deal with this and fight back with satire? I'm, I implore you, we've got to do we've something. We've got to do that. something. But going back to this issue of, I'm wondering if actually avoiding some of the language that Twain used is in some sense true to Twain. I mean, I, I mean, if, if it's even possible in the 21st century to have a faithful adaptation that uses the N-word, that uses... There was, of course, a, a series of books published a couple of years ago where they replaced the racial epithets with Injun. Yes. Uh, in, Injun goes to uh, uh, na- Indian yes. and, and, and also to slave. And so in this time, where, where especially where we're seeing also, like... Princeton students going ahead and protesting uh, the Woodrow Wilson building because of racism. I mean, you know, is it impossible for films such as yours to even have or sustain this dialogue because of political correctness? Is it just an irreconcilable condition? That's a great question. We felt like um, doing a modern day version of, of Twain, if we were to try to do it just like the way that people were talking in the books, that would be one thing, but I feel like it just wouldn't apply the same way today. So what we thought was more interesting was how everyone is so nervous and concerned about what they're saying and the political correctness of things and what is racism and are we being racist right now and am I a racist? And so we thought it was much more funny and interesting to let our protagonists be racially insensitive and trying to figure it out and fumbling over themselves and like having the character of Injun Joe be a white guy who's obsessed with Native American culture instead of being a Native American. And because that just, I feel like if we had done Injun Joe as a Native American, we called him Injun Joe, it just would have been a slaughter. No one would, everyone would have trashed this movie because I feel like we are so... Would it though? I, I mean, think if, so. If you, but if you had actually done so in a very thoughtful manner, wouldn't enough people actually pick up on what you're trying to do? I mean, you know... I hope that they pick up on it in the way that we did it because yeah. I think it's the same, I think it's the same basic conversation. I think it's the same... So you have to pull your punches somewhat in today's age. I th- well, I don't know if we're pulling our punches in terms of the fact that we're sort of making fun of ourselves as a culture and the way that we deal with racism and talk about it. It's it's sort of like the woman I can't remember her name the the who who was pretending to be African American. Uh, uh, who, 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 who oh, yeah, the uh, yeah, the NAACP. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. That is such a fascinating thing to be happening now, and it felt like so timely with the movie. And it's just like one of those weird things where we as a culture, I feel like, are so nervous about... Uh, even like how we talk about her, yeah, because it's like a reversed race thing. It's so, it's just, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating time, and I just feel like it's it was funnier and more interesting to for people to be fumbling over themselves trying to figure out racism than to just do the straight up racist version of those character adaptations. Well, I will say in your defense, Adam, uh, that you do have the scene twice, how is it racist to want to be more like another race? So you right. do broach that, and then of course there's even variations of Injun Joe that are uttered uh, at one point yes. by, uh, <laughs> by, by Ben Rogers and, and, yes. and all that. How did you manage to swing the police car, and did you, Kyle, take it for a spin? I didn't get in that police car. You did? Oh, no, I got well, you, 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 you did? did, you did no, get I into it. I yeah. remember you as, as a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I didn't drive with the, oh, I got lightheaded. I like almost passed out that day. Yes. It was like a weird, I had like all this deep breathing I had to do and like almost went down. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we were pushing you pretty hard. Yeah, I was just tired. 
Um, we we tore that car up. Well, yeah, we crashed that. You car. guys crashed it on the yeah. on the did reshoot. You, was that like a like? Uh, did you get that at the auction or something? Or where did you get that car? No, we we it was a rental. It was a movie yeah, rental. They, you, you, oh, you can rent police. Oh, oh yeah, 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 okay. yeah, yeah. There's movie rental houses that have you know all these police cars and and. At one point, and, I saw there was no license plate attached, and then another yeah. Yes, and then la- yeah. that is man. You watch movies closely. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. yeah. This uh, there were sorry. Like, yeah, there are some. There are a couple of those moments in the movie. As a matter of fact, Kyle and I were driving around in that police car doing uh, the scene where we're sort of yelling at each other about Jorge getting caught. And uh, I didn't realize until we were sort of going for a while that we were driving a police car without a license plate on it. And um, we were kind of like stealing shots driving around. Yeah. And yeah. we really could, you can really get in trouble for that. In Los we Angeles. were basically like impersonating an officer. Impersonating an officer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were there were definitely moments like that on this movie where it's kind of like, oh, I'm glad we didn't we didn't get indie in filmmaking. Trouble. It is fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah. Uh, are there any parallels, Kyle, that you can draw between parrot playing killer Cassidy Casanovas and uh, Huck Finn? <laughs> Cassidy Casablancas? Yeah, Cassidy Casablancas. <laughs> Casanovas. Hey, he, he was a Casanova. I, 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 am, I am Mr. Gaff today. Man. <laughs> I apologize. It's, you know, it's Any comparisons between the two? Um, no. I mean, you know, Cassidy was a... I mean, other than maybe coming from a bit of a broken home, but other than that, you know, Cassidy had been, like, molested and was, like, a very troubled young man. And, and he was, he was you much, could make the argument he was a much Huck darker. Would, but you could make the argument that Huck was molested by Christianity in some way. Well, you know? I guess <laughs> so. you could. I guess if you, yeah, if you really want to dig into it, then I guess I guess so. Um, no, Huck is, uh, I think I think the two of them are pretty, are, are, are pretty uh, separate. I think Huck, um, I think Huck has a better head on his shoulders. I think Cassidy was very um, disturbed and very uh, damaged by his upbringing, whereas I feel like Huck kind of, fought against it a little bit and had Tom to, to, to help him out and, and you know seeing where he is now in the film Cassidy definitely would not oh he's dead but Cassidy <laughs> if he had survived I don't yeah. think would have would, would go to made it place. quite as he yeah. would probably have been in a mental institution somewhere yeah. or it would have been like American Psycho too yeah um, so no not 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 too much. Not not too much. You feel that you've been typecast towards these dark, intense roles, and then you're trying to seek out these lighter ones. No, I mean, I think, I think, when I was younger, yeah, I don't even necessarily know if it was typecast. It was, it was, um, when you're at a certain age, there's, there's not as many roles. So like you're 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 trying to cut your teeth on stuff, and a lot of the stuff you get is just dark guest stars on TV shows or procedurals. And I didn't only, see you on The Walking Dead. <laughs> right. There's only so much you can do. Um, but now as I'm getting older, you know, the stuff I've been playing isn't really, isn't really as dark. Like I have a couple things coming out and, you know, I play Coast Guard who's like a nice guy. I play, um, there's a show I have Outsiders coming out where I play like a very kind hearted yet. Goatee. Can be savage, (laughs) can be savage when he needs to be, um, you know, guy who lives up in the Appalachian mountains. There's, 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 you know, Huck who I think is a very good heart, um, there's a there's a whole kind of new thing opening up now now that I'm getting older, which is which has been really really fun. It's been it's been a lot of fun getting to explore. What, what do you think things. that 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 is? I mean, is it is do you are you coming across differently in auditions? Are you are scripts coming to you? Are people starting to sense something in you that as, as you're older? Yeah, or? I think it's just age and time, and as you get older, the kinds of roles you can audition for open up you know you're not playing someone's disturbed child anymore or something <laughs> like that you're father i mean look i love i love dark roles i love dark movies i mean i think it's i think it's a lot of fun um but it's it's also been fun expanding and and you know just just 
having a shot to play these other things. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking a little older. I'm looking a little different. I'm looking a little more Strapping. grown up. I'm well, not, like, it's one of those things that happens as you get older. You yeah, look a little yeah, older. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah. you know, but yeah. I'm 29, and I was, up until a couple of years ago, I was playing, like, 17. Wow. Yeah. You know well, what when I mean? did that, When was the cutoff for that? Uh, I did this one movie, and I, 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 it was, it was like, oh, this is it, never, never again. I can't. Well, I can't which, which movie was I this? I can't. Uh, I can't play a teenager again. It was called uh, Just Before I Go. And I play, <laughs> it's a I great play, title for this. I played, yeah, yeah, it's a good I played, a, yeah, I played a high schooler, and I played a high schooler, and I'm sitting there like with extras who are like actually high schoolers, and I'm there, and I'm like, I have kids. <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing here? The, uh, Dylan on Beverly Hills. It's time, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's time to stop. Yeah. Um, so the pursuit, you know, the, the, it's it's been good. And it, actually, I played a lot of darker characters on television. Film roles and stuff weren't always as as dark. This is definitely the lightest movie I've ever been in, though. Yeah. This is definitely like the most the the most like fun loving. I, I was looking at your filmography. Enjoyable like, this ride. Guy's sinister. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's. It was it was a dark ride there for a while, but you know, the last the last little bit, the last the last two or three years has been has been a lot of fun. It's 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 opened up. You know, the world's kind of opened up. Or, getting... or, or the world itself has become darker, and then sort of dark right. types like <laughs> yeah. come in, and suddenly I'm the comic lightweight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's become real. I mean, look, you know, let's yeah. let's call it what it is. I mean, I am kind of the the weight of this film. I'm not like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not you coming in your top I'm hat, not, your can, yeah, your my jokes. top hat and yeah. my monocle spitting yeah. jokes. But, um, you know, he comes from a good place. It's not like he's an evil guy or anything. It's yeah. not like he's a bad guy. He's a, he's a good guy. Yeah. You know, he's the, he's the he's moral the center of the, he kind of grounds things. Mm hmm. He allows Tom to be as ridiculous as he is. Absolutely. Well, Adam and Kyle, uh, thank you very much for taking the time out. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, so you nice too. to meet thank you. you. Thank you so thank much. You. Sure, no problem. Thank you. That's all for this special edition of the Bat Segundo Show. My thanks to Ben Griffin, Ben Tarnoff, Adam Nee, and Kyle Gallner, as well as the many good souls of New York City, for appearing on this program. And thanks to you for listening. I'm truly grateful to all of you who wrote in. This is the first radio I've made in almost a year and a half, and I don't know how frequent these shows are going to be. I'm now living a much different and much happier life than I was before, but it was important for me to come back because I wanted to give something to those of you who were kind enough to ask what happened to me, what happened to the Bat Segundo show, and who urged me, despite all the shit that's out there, to keep on going. And I wanted you to know that I was doing okay, that I still had my wits and my acumen, and that no amount of false rumors or conjectures or character assassination or hatred or animosity is going to stop me from smiling, speaking my mind, or making radio. And if you've noticed a slightly different approach to what I'm now doing, well, that's because I'm transitioning to something else. I'll tell you more about that soon. Stay tuned. And feel free to drop me a line if you like by email at ed at edrants.com, E-D-R-A-N-T-S dot com. Until next time, whenever that is, be kind, stay curious, read a good book, and give a stranger a hug. Thanks again. Thanks again.